Good morning. We have uh, two readings this morning. First is from uh, Genesis, and the second from uh, Paul's letter to the Church of Rome. And Paul Harrington will uh, come and unpack all this for us in due course. So the first reading is from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, which you'll find on page 3 in the um, Blue Church Bibles. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You'll not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Second reading from Romans, chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, which is on page 1130 in the Blue Bibles. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one, one man, and death through sin... And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? 
Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in the condemnation of all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, and also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned, reigned in death, so also grace may reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks so much, Stuart. Uh, great to be with you again today. Just to remind you of where we're up to, um, we're spending uh, seven weeks in these first three chapters of the first book of the Bible. Uh, I, I did work out that if we kept proceeding through the Bible at this rate, if you were still here in about 1,542 years' time, we'd get to the end of the Bible. Right? So uh, I know this is quite a you know, slow process at one level, and yet the reason we're doing it is because these first three chapters of the Bible, they land the... I think the essential building blocks for understanding all the key things uh, about who God is, uh, the nature of this world, who we are, and the nature of our relationship with God and some of the problems we have in the world. So that's, I, I really do think these are essential chapters for understanding those sort of things, which is why we've taken our time going through them. We're six-sevenths of the way through today. Uh, so we're at chapter three. We're spending two weeks in this chapter Uh, The first, picking up particularly on the nature of um, sin, the human problem. And then next week, I want to tackle the whole question of what it means to live in a world that's that's broken, um, that that feels the effects of sin in this world. Okay, So that's that's roughly where we're up to and where we're going. There's a uh, a rough outline, a brief outline in the leaflet, if that's useful for you today. But let let me pray as we begin together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you're a God who speaks to us. Uh, We thank you we had the chance to look at your word this morning. Uh, Father, we ask that as we do that, you'll you'll give us ears to hear what you have to say to us. Um, Your word will penetrate our hearts and our thinking and that uh, you'll give us that that longing to know you better and to understand your ways. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember... Uh, several decades ago now, Sue and I going shopping at Ikea, you know, the uh, the big warehouse place down by the airport. Uh, lots of parents go there to shop because as you go in, there's a play area for kids. And uh, the play area includes a huge pit of foam balls uh, that you can drop your kids literally into and uh, they will stay there roughly until you get back. Supervised, so it's a handy way of being able to shop while the kids are actually entertained in a different direction. Sue and I went shopping there one time with our youngest, David, uh, who was about three years old at the time, right? So it's a little while ago now. And we dropped him in this pit, little foam balls about, you know, so big, smaller than a tennis ball, and left him there. Came back about three quarters of an hour later after we got what we wanted, uh, picked him up, put him in the car, took him home. Later that night, as we were changing uh, David, uh, yeah, pulling off his tracksuit pants, one of these little foam balls popped out. And uh, we thought, oh, look, that, that can happen, can't it? You know, like you're playing, it's easy to stick one in your pocket and just forget about it, right? Until we kept changing him, right? And about 
40 of these balls popped out of his trousers, spread all over his floor. And he had this extraordinarily guilty look on his face, like he'd been sprayed. And he had, literally, you know, what is he going to say? All these balls floating around the ground. And you know, we didn't need to say anything. He just looked mortified at what had happened. He knew what he'd done was wrong, even though he was three years old. Now, here's the question. Why did he do it? Okay. Had he been observing, you know, Suet Kmart shoplifting, you know? Um, <laughs> in case you're wondering, the answer to this question is no, he hadn't, right? Uh, uh, you know, had we sent him off to special sort of preschool larceny classes, you know, to sort of sharpen up his skill set? In this? No, we hadn't done that. Why did he actually take that step? He seemed to instinctively know how to do the wrong thing and then instinctively know that he'd done the wrong thing, uh, both at the same time. So let me ask you the question, not why did David do it, but why do we do it? Uh, Because I suspect every person in this room uh, can identify with that experience, Uh, not necessarily as a three-year-old in the Ikea foam ball pit, but you know that experience both uh, as a child and in a more sophisticated way as an adult, doing what you know to not be the right thing to do, and then as you get older, being more sophisticated about justifying it and why you've done it and how you actually cover it up. When we turn to Genesis 3 this morning, we get this insight into why we're like we are. It takes us to the heart of this very issue. Now, Genesis chapter 3, it falls in the middle of a a unit or a block of three chapters. Great to have your Bibles open or your phones open to this app, not your phones open to your emails, but you know what I mean. Okay, great to have the Bible open in front of you because we're going to make our way through the first half of this chapter. Genesis 3 falls in the middle of uh, three chapters. You see where it starts off. Uh, I'll just give you the bookends. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 4. Notice it says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth. This is the account. When you get to chapter 5, Verse 1, notice what it says there. This is the written account of Adam's family line. So the literary clue for when you've got a section in Genesis is this is the account. Right? So we have one at 2, 4, one at chapter 5, verse 1. We have three chapters here. This is the block we're looking at together. We're looking at the central chapter in this block. In chapter 2, what we have is God placing Adam and Eve in this perfect Perfect garden paradise setting. There's harmony, there's peace, there is beauty. It is good, 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 good. You know, you keep hearing that. That's, that's chapter two. Now, by the time you get to chapter four, uh, we're not, not there yet, but when you get to chapter four, Adam and Eve's son, Cain, murders his brother, their other son, Abel. Uh, so we move from this perfect garden paradise to murder. Um, you know, within a family, a pretty horrible step. And what we have in the middle is chapter 3. And chapter 3 explains how we move from utopia to evil and murder. Okay, this is the hinge chapter that helps us get why we're in this situation. And just in case you're tempted to think this is just an interesting exercise in ancient history, and I want to I want to point out why that isn't the case. Um, this helps us understand our world. 
It helps us understand our failures. When you go to the start of this section, so back to chapter 2, verse 4, notice how it's introduced. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. Now, I want to say this does tell us about Adam and Eve, no question about that, but it's not just them. This is not just this is the account of Adam and Eve, but this is the account of the heavens and the earth. You see, this is the account of the human trajectory that's about to flow out here. It gives us insight into us all. These are universal truths. They apply as much to my three-year-old son, David, coming out of the phone pit, as they do to every single one of us, because every single one of us are fallen humanity. That's our nature. So today, we're looking at the, the fallen sinful condition. Next week, second half of the chapter, uh, what it means to live in a fallen world. All right? So let's, uh, let's get into it together. Uh, we want to get to the heart of temptation. So the first five verses of chapter 3, uh, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Remember, God has created a good world. Good, 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 very good. And suddenly we have this serpent or, or snake that's not so good. Just appears unintroduced into the scene. So where does this serpent come from? The Bible actually doesn't provide the answers to those questions. It's interesting, isn't it? He just appears. We're not given give an explanation as to how he appears. You can go elsewhere in the scriptures, say to a place like Revelation 12, where this serpent is equated with Satan and clearly a created being that's in opposition to God. But the Bible is not concerned to provide those sort of questions that are commonly answers to those questions that are commonly asked about this serpent's origin, at least not in any comprehensive way. But what we do see is what God has written here for us to see and to understand. Notice how the serpent undermines the relationship with God, this evil one, the one that's called Satan throughout the scriptures. He undermines relationship with God. Verse 1, he said to the woman, Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree of the garden? Now, I want you to notice something. It's not obvious when you read the English translations, right? But the way in which God is referred to, back in chapter 2, verse 4, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the the different uses uses of the name for God. So back in chapter 1, we have Elohim, sort of the God, the God who creates everything. When you get here to chapter 2, verse 4, we're introduced to the Lord God, right? He is Yahweh. And it's, it's the idea of the personal name for God, the God who keeps his promises. That's the way in which Yahweh always comes up as you go through the scriptures, right? Now, at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, uh, what we have is the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made, Yahweh had made. That's the name there. And then the serpent says to the woman, did God really say? That's Elohim. It's actually what he does at this point is deliberately 
distance uh, the woman from God. Um, And the woman then adopts his lead. So from verse 3 on, the woman starts talking about Elohim, the God out there, rather than the personal God, Yahweh, that she's been introduced to and has experienced. Do you understand? This is God the concept, God the, the principle, God the distant one, rather than the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which would be the way in which we talk about in the New Testament. That's the first ploy. And notice what the, um, the serpent does. You must not eat of any tree. Now, we haven't actually gone through chapter 2 this morning, but this is just absurdly wrong. Um, and the suggestion is that God is mean. He hasn't said you can't eat from any tree. There's just one tree right, that, that there is a good reason for not eating from. But Eve is drawn in to correct. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees of the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you'll die. Now, this is a really loose rendering of chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Uh, in those verses, you, you read them and you discover that God is much more positive and generous in his desire to look after Adam and Eve. But also, in addition, she gets one key thing wrong. Notice she says, we must not touch it. Uh, God actually didn't say that. Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting addition. Can, can I say, here is the definition of religion. The definition of religion is when people add to or subtract from the word of God. In other words, when, when people make up their own religion and their own frameworks for understanding it. And that's actually what is going on at this point. But Eve is hooked. Verse 4. Uh, you, will, you will not certainly die, uh, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now notice what's happening here. Satan directly attacks God's character and his truthfulness. The father of lies calls God a liar. That is precisely what's going on here. But it is a use of clever half-truths. Um, your eyes will be opened. Actually, that's true. And they feel shame for the first time and guilt. They experience that. You'll know good and evil. Actually, that's true because they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they become like God in a way that they were never created to be. We'll come back to that and explore it a bit more. You see, they take steps and they choose to self-destruct in a whole range of ways. Satan says God is selfish. He's controlling. That's, that's the implication here. He's ripping you off. You'll be much better off if you decide what's right for you. Now, isn't that exactly the trap we fall into when we ignore God? 
I know what God says and I know the Bible says God loves me and has my best interests at heart. But truthfully, I actually think I know better. I think if I just do things my way and work out what's best for me, that's what will be in my best interest. Why should I have to miss out? Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some, she ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. That's how it works. The temptation that occupies her senses, her eyes, her stomach, her imagination, her desire, her aspiration to be autonomous. And the whole pattern here is the exact reverse of the way God designed it. Did you pick up sort of structurally how it's working? Back in chapter 2, you have, you have God. God creates man. God creates a partner for, for man, the woman. And then they are to rule over the world, including the animals, whom they name in due course. God, man, man and woman... The created order, including animals. Now you come here to chapter 3. Notice that's been flipped on its head. What we have is the animal, the serpent, who tempts and controls Eve, who helps Adam sin in rejection of all that God has said. See, the whole flipping on its head of the intended order of what God meant for humanity in this world, ignoring what he says. So, let me ask you a question. What's at the heart of sin? And what's at the heart of sin here? What sin do Adam and Eve engage in? I mean, they eat from a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and quite interestingly, there's been enormous speculation uh, about this. And you see the images of the apple, you know, the, the, like this identifies a piece of fruit. But, you know, the way in which that... Uh, plays out in literature and thinking and uh, what, it, what it indicates. The sin here, though, is centering on that desire, I think, to become like God. And that's expressed in that phrase, to become like God by knowing good and evil. See, humanity, Adam and Eve, us, we're made in the image of God. But we are not meant to be like God in one respect. Knowing good and evil. Knowing good and evil. That is not, not the sense of um, experiencing good, but rather in the sense in which it's unfolded here in this chapter. That is, we're not created to be self-governing or autonomous and decide for ourselves what good and evil are. See, that's the prerogative of God, to actually determine those boundaries. So when it comes to sin, we tend to focus on uh, specifics. You know, the um, you know, theft, stealing phone balls from Ikea, or, um, you know, the way in which we lie to people or rip people off, or... Uh, are immoral in some sort of way. We can identify particular sins, 
But at the end of the day, they're all expressions of self-rule. Wanting to determine for ourselves what good and evil are. See, sin at its heart is the removal of God to make yourself God. Be self-ruling. That's at the heart of all sin. And that's at the heart of this knowledge of good and evil here. Now, from there, what you see in this um, first part of uh, Genesis chapter 3 is it all starts to unravel. Uh, You get to verse 7. Their eyes were opened and they sow fig leaves for covering, for clothing. It's just sad and pathetic, really. And yet it's obvious. I mean, if you decide to do your own thing instead of living God's way, if you decide not to trust God, then I can't trust you. Because I don't quite know what you're going to do. Uh, Because you're going to do what's in your best interests, and I'm not sure how that will affect me. And so there's this breakdown of trust uh, between uh, the man and the woman at this point. Verse 8, the man and his wife, they heard the sound of the Lord God, and they hid. At this point, we revert back to Yahweh, the personal name for God, the God who cares for his image bearers, the God who created a good world because he loves his people. This God they hear and they hide from the good and the generous God. Why? Well, we're told in verse 10, man says, I was afraid because I was naked. Interesting, isn't it? He actually is literally exposed but he doesn't seek the opportunity to come clean. Uh, he hides from God. I mean, how you do that, I don't know. I mean, we all know that's stupid, but nonetheless, that's exactly what he's doing at this point. And isn't, isn't that what we tend to do when we ignore God in our lives? Hide? I remember when I was about eight years old, I was right into um, soccer, that form of football, or the only form of football, some will say. And uh, I remember I was at the front of our yard. We had these two sort of pine trees, and I was using them as goalposts, right, to kick my soccer ball, right, in between those. Now, the other thing you need to know is these pine trees framed a big plate glass window in my parents' bedroom. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I, was eight. I wasn't terribly smart, but I love soccer. Uh, and I was kicking this ball into the wall below the thinking I had superb control, but one of my kicks went, out, went straight through the window, right? Smashed this pane glass window and went into the room. Now, at that point, I ran around the corner and hid behind a tree. <laughs> now, I don't know why I thought that was clever or would resolve anything, because there was my ball, you know, Paul Harrington written across it, in the middle of my parents' bed with glass all around it. You know, this, you know I was done for, uh, for all money. But isn't that the, not just the eight-year-old tendency, but isn't it the adult tendency as well? That, that temptation to try and hide. Hide from the people we've hurt. Hide from God. I, I wonder if we try and hide from ourselves by suppressing truth at different points too. I think it's, there's a lot of ways to hide from God. The atheist um, for the atheist, God disappears into an intellectual puff of smoke. That's, that's the way to hide from God. Or the agnostic. 
maybe God exists, maybe he, he doesn't. Um, certainly not Yahweh. This is the distant God, the unknowable God. And if only he would reveal himself, then I could get to know who. But I know, uh, and therefore I'm free to do what I want. That's the, the agnostic. I think the most common way we do it, though, in our culture, is to recreate God the way we'd like him to be. How often do you hear people say this sort of phrase? My God would never hold anyone accountable for X. Or my God loves people. Um, therefore, he doesn't hold their sin My God is happy for us to do what we like and what's right for us, and he'll be happy with that. My, do you understand? My God doesn't exist. <laughs> That's the pro- you, can't, you can't, as a creature, make God. You've got to allow God to be God. I visited a guy who was in his 80s for an operation just a couple of months ago. A guy I've been trying to evangelise for um, decades and decades and decades. And a good friend of the family, lovely man. And I thought, you know, he's in his late 80s going for operation. This might be one of the last chances. I thought I might as well be as direct as I've ever been, right? And so I said, what do you think um, if... You know, if God does exist, because we bear in mind we'd had this conversation, and you front up to him, right, because this operation doesn't go well and you're 88 and you could die potentially any time, you know. Uh, let's say that happens. What are you going to say to him? Ah, uh, I think what I'd say is, you know, I've tried to live the best sort of life I've known how to live, and I think he'll be happy with that. Now, do you understand that's a self-determining rule for how I live my life, and I always pass, right? <laughs> Every single time. I always meet the pass mark on my own definitions. When Sue, my wife, became a Christian, she was uh, 17 years of age, and so just going into university, and she remembers the prayer she prayed the night she became a Christian. God, I will let you tell me what you are like rather than me telling you what you should be like. Now, she didn't know what to pray, but at that essential level, she got it totally right. God, I'll let you tell me what you are like. I won't try and tell you what you should be like. Friends, the Lord God of the Bible... He has made us in his image. He has blessed us immensely. And he does hold us accountable when we push him to one side and redefine him and tell him what he can be like. Then as you get to this last part of the first section, you see the blame game starting. You know, uh, God, God appears in the garden, talks to them, and the man says, the woman you gave me, this is the problem, you know. God, it's your fault. Verse 13, the woman says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. God, the animal you made, that's the problem. And the serpent doesn't have a leg to stand on. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> that is, do you know, the whole, but don't we do that? 
Can we just pass the buck, self-justify, explain the way how it happened? That's exactly what you see back in the garden. It's not my fault. And you see it in more sophisticated ways today. I think in our sort of therapeutic sort of culture, we have a lot of ways we talk about this. It's not my fault. I'm a victim. You know, it's my circumstances, it's my hormones, it's the government, it's my spouse, it's my genes, it's my upbringing, you know, it's my parents' fault. That was my view until I became one, you know, and then I, then I started blaming my children. It's their fault, actually, you know, <laughs> because if I got more sleep, I'd be fine, you know. And, uh, like, isn't that the way in which, which it works? There's always a reason, there's always an explanation. That's the way it happens. And you see it here in Genesis, and it just gets rolled on through the ages. See, what we have here, it gives us wonderful insights into the heart of the human problem. And the heart of the human problem is, is doubting God. We doubt God's word. Christianity has developed a really um, bad reputation among the social sciences because we tend to include... Uh, and talk about the problems of guilt and sin, shame. And a lot of the social sciences, you know, uh, psychology and uh, sociology will talk about how self-destructive they are to, to self-esteem and they demean us in different ways. We need to develop a positive view of self. Can I say sin and guilt, they're real? And they've been real in every single culture throughout history. Every culture knows these concepts and acknowledges them. And the question is, how do you face up to them and how they're dealt with? We can try and cover them up, uh, suppress them. We can choose therapeutic means to try and make them seem less powerful. We even now today use drugs to actually help us. There's a drug that um, propranolol, some of you who are doctors will have heard of it. It was designed for a particular purpose, but then they discovered it actually, um, one of its side effects is it helps people uh, forget things that make them feel guilty. Isn't that interesting? You know? And uh, it's, a, it's a side effect that has that sort of impact. So there are therapeutic ways now, uh, medicinal ways, of dealing with our guilt. We can doubt God's goodness. Uh, Adam and Eve, I want you to remember who they are in, the, in, in this storyline. They're like a king and a queen in a garden. They've only ever known God to be kind and generous and good. And yet, they're tempted to think that they're missing out. I just wonder whether the evil one ever whispers in your ear. You know, did God really say? You know, you know you want it. Everyone else is doing it. It does look like fun. Go on. Don't be suppressed in your self-expression. Live a little. And we're tempted. Tempted to doubt God. 
But friends, the early chapters of this part of the Bible, they present us with a God who can be trusted. He's not the unknowable, distant concept. Uh, He is personal. He's the creator who blesses and who seeks out those who are made in his image. He does it in the garden and he's always done it. When you get to the New Testament, he's portrayed as the loving father of our Lord Jesus Christ who is out looking for the lost because that is his nature. Adam turns his back on God. He opts for self-rule. And it's a pattern that we're all caught up in. Every single generation and every single human being has ever lived. So here's the thing. When we turn our back on God and tell God to get stuffed, right? Tell God to nick off. What do you reckon God ought to do, the creator of the universe? I think if he was like me, he would think, I think I'll nuke him and start again. You know? <laughs> sort of, we'll, we'll sort of create somewhere. You know, but he, he actually doesn't do that. Romans 5 verse 19 that Stuart read for us. It reads, For just as through the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man many will be made righteous. You see, God sends his own son into this world and he's called the second Adam. The second Adam. And we see him in the New Testament in another garden, in the Garden of Gethsemane just before he's about to be executed. And he says to his heavenly father, not my will, but yours be done. And he willingly goes to the cross and dies there and takes the punishment for sin and for guilt and the shame and everything that goes with that so that all who put their trust in him have their sin totally dealt with, are completely forgiven and brought back into this relationship with their creator God, their heavenly father. Friends, this morning, can I encourage you to keep trusting God and to keep believing in his word and in his character Decide with with the Saviour, with Jesus, with the second Adam, uh, the one who has generously dealt with your guilt and your shame and your sin. Friends, this is a God that we can trust. We can trust him. Can I pray for us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that uh, you're a wonderful creator, God. But, but here in this part of the Bible, we see the way in which um, we don't trust you. We doubt you. We see the implications of uh, sin working themselves out in the garden, but we know for every generation ever since. And Father, we pray that uh, we'll be people who keep uh, working out what it means to, uh, to put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ so that our our sin is profoundly dealt with, so we're right with you, 
So we don't have to redefine you or our behaviour to make it fit within the parameters of what we can accept, uh, but instead can expose it uh, to the, the sunlight of your grace and mercy and truth. Father, help us to be people who live with that sort of integrity with you, with one another. Uh, we, we pray that you'll keep growing us in confidence in your promises and in your purposes for us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.